This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. It's so good to be with you. Uh, if you're new to us, you need to know that we have uh, spent all summer in the Psalms. And what we've learned from the Psalms is that they are the songbook of ancient Israel, and they are meant to shape our inner lives and our emotions uh, to really help us understand our own emotions. But not only that, not only do we get a range of emotions from the Psalms, but we actually get to understand the various facets of God and God's heart and His character through this. It helps us to see a new part of Him. And this is really important to understand because God is real. And because he's real, he, of course, is complex, just like you are complex, and there's a lot of dimensions to you. The problem, of course, is that we tend to see God very one-dimensionally, and if God is one-dimensional to you, it's hard to have a relationship with him. You know, I was thinking um, when COVID shutdown started in March, my family and I, we decided we're going to watch the, the trilogy, trilogy of the Lord of the Rings, and then we moved on and did the trilogy of the Hobbit. We watched them all. Now, if you've seen these movies, like, there are scenes that are just, like, bloody. I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of creatures wiped out in one scene. I mean, it's awful. Killed in cold blood. Y'all remember the orcs? I mean, like, the orcs die like insects on a windshield. But you know what? It doesn't bother you much. You know, my, my girls, tender-hearted girls, didn't, didn't slow them up at all. Why? Well, because they're quite one-dimensional. You can't have a relationship with the org. There's not much to them, right? You can't relate to them. And so their lives, quite frankly, are, from the viewer's perspective, quite inconsequential. But the hobbits, the hobbits are different, right? The hobbits are like, sometimes they're really good, Sometimes they're courageous. Sometimes they're foolish and cowardly, right? Now, when it looks like a hobbit is on the brink of death, your heart skips a beat, right? Why? Because at that point, you feel like you have a relationship with the character. Well, here's the thing, is that our view of God is often one-dimensional, right? Some, for some, people imagine God to be this happy all-accepting God who looks surprisingly a lot like Morgan Freeman from Bruce Almighty, right? Just cool with whatever. For others, God is this distant, grumpy, toga-wearing figure who's on top of clouds with lightning bolts, right? Just ready to judge you. But in either case, it's difficult to have a relationship with that God because he's very flat. He's one-dimensional, But each of these psalms that we've been studying gives us a different view, a different picture, or a different kind of governing metaphor to help us understand what our God is like. And so we have seen him, we've understood him as a king, we've understood him as a judge, we've seen how he is our shepherd, right, or our refuge. And when God becomes, and the idea is that you don't want to just choose the metaphor that you like, What you want to do is you want to hold all of them together, all of that. And when God becomes all of those things to you, like Tim Keller likes to tell us, 
That's when you become a Christian. (laughs) Why? Because then you're having a relationship with God. Not just this proposition, but a real relationship with him. And in fact, when that happens, you might even say things like this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is in me. Bless his name, soul. It's vulnerable to talk like that, isn't it? It's tender. Have you ever spoken to God like that? And meant it. King David, he's writing Psalm 103, and he's kind of in his older older years, right? So he's seen a lot in his life. He's pretty salty at this point, but you can really get a sense that he has had a deep relationship with God. He has needed God profoundly. And so the lyrics of this song, of Psalm 103, are enchanting, and they're meant to like usher us into a relationship with God. And so today, the primary metaphor that we are going to explore from Psalm 103 is God as a father. God as a father. In the very middle of Psalm 103, in verse 13, we're going to hear the, the lyricist sing, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So Psalm 103 is pretty long. Uh, we're not going to be able to get to all of it today. It's going to begin with David exhorting his soul. He's going to talk to us. He's, like, he's going to say, bless the Lord. And he's going to say, soul, forget not his benefits. Don't forget his benefits. God who forgives. God who heals. God who redeems. Who crowns with love. Who satisfies you. So that's how it all opens up in Psalm 103. And then in the middle part, we're going to see God uh, the lyricist David explaining those fatherly benefits. And that's what we're going to explore today, that kind of middle part. And then the end, it's going to finish with David not only telling his soul to bless the Lord, but everyone, angels and authorities, everyone get in on blessing the Lord. And that's how it ends. So uh, for you note takers today, we're going to evaluate the song 103. And um, we can, we're, we're asking it to show us how to experience certainty that God is our father, And he is our, um, and we are his children. And then we're going to see these three benefits to tell our soul. And those three benefits, note takers, are the father's discipline, the father's love, and the father's embrace. And with that, we're going to give ourselves to Psalm 103. Are you all ready? All right, would you, in reverence to God's word, would you stand with me? And let me just read these precious words over us. I'm going to read the whole thing uh, because it's the very best part of the whole sermon. Here now the reading of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is, in, is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your mouth, so that your, your youth is renewed like the eagle's. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from him. As a father shows compassion to his children, the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. 
for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to his children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The grass withers and the flower fade, but not these words. They last forever. May he bless it for us. Amen. You may be seated. So the the first benefit that we want to really preach to our souls, tell our souls, really deals with the father with fatherly discipline, father's discipline. Uh, when my children were younger, we lived right beside a park, and I would take them to the park, and we live in an area where there's lots of kids and so forth, so the parks would always be packed. It's, you know, pre-COVID days, of course, and, um, you know, I would, upon seeing all these children and them behaving, the question I had is, where are these kids' parents? <laughs> you know, joking, not joking. Right? Because they're a little bit rowdy. Uh, but, you know, honestly, it didn't bother me that much that the children were a little bit misbeha- misbehaving a certain way. Why? Because they're not my children. But on occasion, my kids would start mimicking the behavior of the other kids. At that point, it does sort of arouse my fatherly displeasure. And so I pull them to the side and I discipline my children. Now, my kids go into lawyer mode at that moment. And what do they say? They say, Dad, why do I get in trouble when all the kids, everyone else is doing the same thing and they're not getting in trouble? And I say, well, it's easy because they're not my children. I only discipline my children. That's how you know you're mine, right? See, discipline's not evidence of my grumpiness or vengeance. It's actually a product and a function of my esteemed relationship with them. Now, that's on a good day, right? Because sometimes my uh, discipline is a product of my vengeance and displeasure. I mean, I'm the freak show dad who's yelling at their kids on the way to church to preach to you about how to raise your kids, right? So I get it. I'm not a perfect dad. I'm far from perfect. But that's not the Lord. The Lord is perfect in his fatherly character. Look there at verse 8. Look how it demonstrates who he is. It says, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Verse 9, he will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. And so what we see here with God is that there is indeed anger, right? There is anger, but it's a different kind of anger. He is slow. He's not explosive, right? He's not grumpy or passive-aggressive, He's not touchy. He's not manipulative. His anger is abounding and clothed in steadfast love. Look there at verse 10. It says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. See, God's anger has the shape of discipline. 
right? It is perfect, and it's constructive. That's really important that you understand this part of God's fatherly discipline, because if you don't get this, listen, Trinity, you will not want to come to him. See, God's parental anger is not retributive. He's not, he's not making you pay for your sins. Man, I wish that I could just like grab you and make you believe this. Because we're like in a classroom right now, but I really need you to believe this, especially when you are suffering, especially when you're having a hard time. Because, you, because you're always, we're always going to project on God. We're going to say, God, why are, you, why are you making me pay for my sins? I'm having a t- hard time of this. Why are you making me suffer, God? And you'll begin to resent him when you're having a hard time. Because you only understand his anger as, being, as paying for something. You know, when parents participate in retribution, that kind of anger is actually poisonous. It is destructive, not constructive. It's important that we see God's anger in biblical perspective because we will tend to project on God the examples that we've seen in our own life, our bad experiences mostly. So on one hand, maybe it's unbridled anger, right? This is the abusive parent who can't control their emotional verbal anger. And so they're constantly just thick with guilt and manipulation. Or maybe that's not your experience. Maybe it's the other side. Maybe there's no anger at all. You have the parent who's completely passive and disinterested, uh, the parent who is detached and neglects, right? But here's what I want you to see, is that with God, there is no misappropriated anger. There is anger, it is real, but it is the product of fatherly discipline, clothed in love. It is a skillful anger. He will not always chide. It's not that he's disinterested in our choices, But he won't lord it over you, you see. That's not how he works. It's really really important that we tell our souls to bless the Lord because of his fatherly discipline. That is a benefit. Well, that's the first one. There's a second benefit, and it's the fatherly, uh, God's secure love for us. See, to be a child is to be saturated by your heavenly Father's unbreakable love. When I wake up Micah in the morning on a Saturday, let me tell you what I don't say. I don't say, Micah, clean your room. If you do all of your work, if you're a good boy, I will love you. Right? That's horrible. Like, that's horrifying thought, isn't it? Like a carrot. No, what do I do? I say, Micah, you're my boy I'll always love you no matter what, but let's get to work. Let's get to work. This will be great, right? Can you see how in, that, in the second case, love, secure love, is a motivator for obedience? It actually precedes obedience. Y'all see that? I'm so sad to report that that is not what we generally get from Christian pulpits, That's not what we're hearing in our churches. See, most people see God's love as a reward for obedience. Sadly, it's like the fear of rejection or the reward of love has been the church's primary motivators. And yet, if we were to practice that as a framework in our homes with parents and their children, 
wouldn't our children just ultimately resent us? Like, thanks, Dad, for the carrot you put over my, in front of my face to motivate me, right? It'd be awful. And, and, and that is the framework that we are putting on and seeing God. That's how we see him. But see, that characterization doesn't square with how God is depicted in his fatherly love in 103. Look there now in verse 13 in your text. It says, see, as a father shows compassion to his children... So, or maybe we could say in the same way, the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Can I just, let me elaborate on two of those words. To fear, look at that word fear in verse 13. To fear him is not to be afraid of him. In Hebrew, that word has a very positive connotation. It means to experience him with awe and wonder and a a soul reverence, right? Right? And then the word compassion, the Lord shows compassion. Compassion here is not pity, right? It is a deep, moving love that propels us to action. We see that word used a couple times in the Old Testament. One particular time is found in 1 Kings chapter 3. And there's this story about this woman who, whose baby uh, died. And in her grief, she goes and tries to take another woman's baby. And so now you have these two women that are laying claim on the same child. And so they go before a judge. And the judge says, I know how to fix this. I'm going to pull out a sword. I'm going to cut this baby in half. You get half the baby and you get half the baby, right? And it says that the mother, the one that was the true biological mother, said that the mother was filled with compassion. That same word, compassion. It says that her heart yearned for her child and she was willing to sacrifice and make great sacrifices for the child. Her heart yearned for her child. Did you know that God's heart yearns? For his children. And this gets even more interesting when it explains in the very next verse, verse 14, why God's heart yearns in this way. Look there at verse 14. For or because he knows our frame, right? He knows how we're formed. He remembers that we are dust. Like, what does that mean? Like, God loves his children. His heart yearns for them. Why? Because we're dust. Didn't see that coming. What does that mean? Here's what that means. It means that the Father knows that we are fragile. The Father knows that we're hypocrites. The Father knows that we're clumsy and wavering, that we're inconsistent. And against all odds, the God of the Bible is depicted as a father whose love and affection is occasioned and even provoked by our weakness. Not our goodness, not our performance. Do you hear what I just said? That his love is actually occasioned by, it's woken by the fact that we're dust, that we're weak and inconsistent. Listen, every average to below average parent can get this. Listen, my children are quite diverse. They have strengths and weaknesses to them, just like any child. Now, when a man and I recognize a certain weakness in one of our children, do you think that our love for them starts trending downwards? No, right? Every parent knows that when you see your child struggling, if anything, it actually awakens an affection, right? It actually makes you love them more. You lean into it, right? Average to below average parents, right? If that is true for us, how much more for God? How much more the fatherly love? 
He knows that we're dust, and it actually awakens. Do you see how the texture of fatherly love is quite different and far more profound? Will you tell your soul that? Will you tell your soul that? That's the second benefit. Let's consider the very last benefit that our soul must be reminded of, and it's the Father's embrace and reception. It was about 10 years ago now, Amanda and I watched a George Clooney movie called Up in the Air. All right, y'all know when pastors mention movies from the pulpit, that doesn't give you permission to go watch it with your family, make it family movie night, right? Do your homework. There might be themes that aren't appropriate, right? So this little disclaimer, no emails on Monday, right? All right, okay, here we go. So we watched this movie, Up in the Air, and Clooney plays the role of this guy named Ryan Bingham, and he's like the single professional exec type. He specializes in termination assistance, and so he's constantly traveling and flying from big company to big company, Fortune 500 stuff, and he just helps these company lay people off. That's what he does, and so he's a specialist. So he's actually pretty gifted, and he kind of becomes like this, um, like a side hustle of being like a motivational self-help speaker. And so he has this talk, and it's called, it's titled, What's in Your Backpack? And in this self-help talk that he gives, he extols the virtues of living with no material possessions, no strings attached relationships. He is completely free, right? He is free. And so he's a frequent flyer, and his goal in the movie, and it's his express goal to, be, to show that he's consistent with his own philosophy, is to have 10 million frequent flyer miles with American Airlines. Like, that's his goal, all right? So as he's traveling from job to job, he actually meets this woman named Alex, and uh, she's also an, ex- an executive type, always traveling, and she appears to have the same philosophy as Clooney's character, so they meet a few times in their travels, and they begin to like each other. But at one point, Alex actually rattles off a few questions to George Clooney's character, and she begins to kind of, in some ways, like destabilize or uh, question, uh, question him in a way that makes Ryan Clooney's character think that maybe his philosophy of life is wrong. Now, he's starting to like her, so he decides to kind of betray his own philosophy. He goes for it. On an impulse, he gets on a plane to Chicago. He finds Alex's home, and when he shows up to her house, he realizes that she has a husband and a family. And uh, he's stunned, and he just leaves, kind of rethinking everything. She, She calls him up, and she says, hey, listen... Her family is her real life. He's just the escape. He's like, not the thing. So he gets back on a plane, and he's just in this place. And while he's like, re- like replaying all of what just happened, the captain of the ship gets on the PA system and says, congratulations to Ryan Bingham, who just hit 10 million miles. He did it. He met his goal. And there's like a sadness that kind of comes over him. And the movie ends with, the, with his character, Clooney's character, standing in front of this destination board, thinking, what, 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 where do I go to next? He has no home. There's no roots. There's this misery that the audience can feel about this guy. No one is waiting for him at home. No one. You know, C.S. Lewis, y'all know I like to quote him a lot. He says, um, perhaps 
a metaphor for hell that is far worse than fire is being eternally forgotten by God whose notice and attention represents the most significant relationship anyone could ever have. This idea that no one is waiting for you at home. Perhaps the most abusive action that a parent could inflict on his or her child is to not recognize that they exist. That is far more painful than grumpiness that their existence didn't matter. Why? Because when a kid sense that, senses that, they think that they're an orphan, that they're not wanted. See, there's no embrace. There's no reception. Can y'all feel the pain of that thought? Can y'all feel the pain of that thought? That describes the implication of verses 15 and 16. Look there again in your Bibles. 15 says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. Verse 16. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. So David, the lyricist, right, he understands like the horror of being forgotten. He understands it. And so he doesn't leave the song there. He changes, and he reminds us of the, the one and only place that we can call home. The one place that is eternally familiar. And so in contrast to verses 15 and 16, what does 17 say? Look there in your Bibles. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to his children's children. See, home is our Father's certain and loving embrace. It's a pillow for our soul. Instead of the radical brevity of our days, what we get is everlasting embrace. God's embrace is the place of remembrance that our souls absolutely need. See, in this life, there's always this cosmic lostness or this aimlessness that we feel. Have you ever felt it in the stillness of your soul that this life, I mean, no matter how good it is, it never fully pays out, doesn't it? We'll have these moments, these tastes, but as soon as we grab it, it's elusive. It just doesn't pay out. When I go home to Houston, my hometown, it feels like as an adult, this, the city has lost its magic. And what I've realized is that that feeling that I have has nothing to do with the city itself. It's me. And you know why we feel this? The Bible tells us that we are all in exile. See, our first parents, Adam and Eve, because of their disobedience, they were kicked out. Because of their sedition, they were kicked out of the garden. They were kicked out of Eve. And to this day, you and I join them in exile. We desperately want to get back to Eden. We want to get back. And on occasion, we'll have these echoes of Eden, right? It's when you're, when you're standing on the precipice of the Grand Canyon, staring out into everlasting. Or when your toes are in the warm sand, right, on the beach, staring out into the infinite ocean. Or when you're behind home plate at Minute Maid Park looking at the city skyline. It's, right? It's beautiful. It feels both familiar and unfamiliar. It's like a new 
song, but a familiar song, like a song you've heard before, and it's haunting, and it reverberates off the halls of your heart. It's special, but it's elusive. It's like we're all these immigrants who are trying to get back to our homeland, but a homeland we've never seen before, but we know it's our homeland. All of us are trying to capture that place, capture that moment, capture that tune, that song that can serve as a pillow for our soul, one that would embrace every part of who we are, but it never comes. When I visited Houston a few years ago with my children, there was this one field that I wanted to show my children. it, for me, this field, and there was like a kind of a wooded area, was the stage or the theater for my imagination. I mean, endless summer days on my bicycle to discover untold wonders and possibilities and adventures. I must have fallen in love a thousand times on those hallowed fields. A certain innocence and wonder are contained on that place, in, those, in that Eden of mine. But when I got to this world, the unthinkable happened, Trinity. In the words of the great sage Adam Duritz from Counting Crows, they paved paradise and put up a parking lot. I can't get back to Eden. I want to. I want it. I want the magic. But I can't. I want to go home. But home even if it were there, wouldn't pay out. Why? Because our days are like grass and its place knows it no more. Don't you see? Don't you see? But see what David, through this song, he's giving us something better. He's saying, home, the place that remembers you, it's not a place, it's an embrace. You are home in the embrace of your heavenly Father. And it can sustain you if you'll let it. And it can be enough for your children as well. But here's what you must do. Here's what you must do. You must talk to your soul. Bless the Lord, my soul. All that's within me, bless his holy name. Soul, did you hear me? Bless the Lord and don't you dare forget his benefits. The Father's discipline, the Father's textured love, the Father's certain embrace. Savor it, sing it, swim in it. That's what this song is for. All right, let me just conclude real briefly. It would pain me if um, after this sermon, what you heard me say was just dutifully count out the benefits, congregant, be grateful, enumerate his benefits, discipline, love, and embrace. You wouldn't want to be an ingrate, would you? It'd make me sad if that's what you heard me say to you today. What I long for us to do is something far more romantic. See, 
Psalm 103 is not a forced song. It's, it's this contagious song. It's a song that your heart can't get off of its proverbial lips. It's on repeat, right? The beauty of its truth, the hope of its message is meant to drive you to the altar of God's grace so that you say, God, I want to covenant with you. I want to give all of me to you. All that is in me, I want the certainty of knowing that you're my father and I am your son. I am your daughter. How do we get there? How do we get to that place? And here's where I'll end. David gives us the answer, but it's, it could be easy to miss. So I want to take you to it real quick. Look there in verse 8, and this is where I'm going to end. In verse 8, David is quoting Moses verbatim. This is a quote from Exodus 34. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The original audience who's first singing the song, they would have had this memorized from their youth. And yet, when if you were to read Exodus 34, they're expecting David to say, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, right? Forgiving iniquity, but, says Exodus 34, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. But David, in Psalm 103, he cuts that part off, doesn't he? He cuts that off and he inserts something new. And instead of saying, by no means clearing the guilty, he says, look, verse 9. He will not always chide. He will not keep his anger. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us. Verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That is a vastly different ending to Exodus 34 from visiting the iniquity upon the children, the fathers on the children, right? He's saying, as far as the east is from the west, I don't remember any of this. Listen, if you're traveling on the earth, on a globe, and you start going north, at some point you're going to start going south, right? But if you're traveling east, you'll always be traveling east. And if you're traveling west, you'll always be traveling west as if to say, God's mercy, because of it, your sin and God's justice will never touch he infinitely removes it and he never holds it over your head. Ever. How could he say something like that? Who's right, Moses or David? By all just calculations, the father and the son should pay for their sins. How is mercy accomplished? And the only way to understand this is who David understood through a promise to him would be his descendant years later, Jesus Christ. See, in the New Testament, Jesus was the obedient son. The obedient son that you and I were not. And he knew that God was his heavenly father. He was certain of it. It actually animated him. It animated his, his ministry. And in fact, every time that Jesus talks about God, he doesn't call him God. What does he call him? Father, 
my Father, our Father, Abba Father. He's always calling him Father, except for one time. There's one time when he suspends that, and it's really noticeable. It's when he's hanging on the cross, and he says, not my Father, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you rejected me? What happened there, y'all? What happened there? The Father rejected the Son. God did remember our sins. God the Father repaid God the Son the price for our sins. Why? Don't you see? Don't you see? The Son was rejected by the Father to make sure that you would never be rejected by the Father. And that's why we're here singing. Let that saturate your soul. The certainty of God's fatherly love, fatherly embrace, fatherly discipline. All of those benefits comes through Jesus, the one true son. And when you're weak and you don't have words, Psalm 103 is this sacred romance to enchant and reverberate off your soul. Oh, my soul. Bless the Lord's soul. Listen to me, soul. Do not forgive his benefits. That is a sweet song, isn't it? May it be yours. Amen.